0: Hello, my name is Chris Salter and welcome to the Junior Family Law Podcast.: A collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. Hello, my name is Mike Finnegan, so I'm a solicitor at Burgess Salmon having joined upon qualification in September 2018. Today, I am joined by Louise Tromans, a six-year PQE senior associate at Mills and Reeve, and Ali Granville, a three-year PQE solicitor at Newton Kearns. Uh, In this episode, we're going to be discussing the instruction of experts in financial remedy proceedings. So, we'll look at why and how we might instruct an expert, the different types of experts which are more commonly instructed, and what to do once we've received the expert's report. To begin with, why might we instruct a single joint expert? So, this is typically where the value or future value of something is an issue, either because the parties can't agree on it, such as a property, uh, or because it's something that they or we as solicitors might not have sufficient expertise to be able to prepare a uh, report on or, or, or evaluation of such as business or, or pensions. So the report can be used to ascertain the current value of something, but also to find out things such as the likely future growth or development of, of an asset or ways in which it could be used to fund settlement, uh, the tax consequences, or a number of other areas which we'll explore in this podcast. As I mentioned, today we're primarily going to be discussing the instruction of single joint experts in relation to uh, property, pensions and business. These are some of the most common areas we tend to find an expert report is required. But there's there's a range of items or areas in relation to which we might want to instruct an expert and there are no set limits on what we might seek to have valued or analysed for the purpose of financial remedy proceedings. To name a few less common areas from my own recent experience, we might seek to instruct an expert to, to value art or antiques, uh, jewellery, cars, we might We might seek to instruct an expert to report on the value and contents of the family home to assist in agreeing a chattel's division uh, any collectible items one party might have essentially for most things for which your value can be ascribed uh, or are to be split during the settlement process an expert report evaluation can be obtained so i think it's useful to look now at the point at which we might instruct an expert so Louise, when, when might we want to instruct an expert?
1: Um, in terms of instructing an expert, obviously it depends if you're in proceedings or not in proceedings. I mean, in terms of not being in proceedings, you can do it at any stage. It, it tends to be after you've exchanged voluntary for me because that's going to crystallise where the differences are. So for example, um, valuation of a property, if they're very, very far apart in terms of the matrimonial home, for example, um, it could be that you know it, it's shown that There's complex pension arrangements, such as an NHS pension, for example, and and these issues start to come to light. So it can be that you agree jointly through the voluntary disclosure process that actually you're going to start to get an expert involved. Um, And and also at this point, other issues can be flagged up in terms of medical expert information, for example, as well. So it could be an earning capacity issue in terms of a disability or an illness. I've had one before that's relating to care home when a party's got dementia, um, and doing a report just on what their needs are going to be moving forwards because that's all going to be relevant in terms of settlement and then in terms of within court proceedings you would make your application prior to the first directions appointment and make a, a part 25 application it's I always think it's good once you've exchanged Form Z to kind of write to the other side at an early stage setting out where you think the issues are and I suppose also that that becomes relevant in terms of your preliminary documents um you know your statement of issues what the actual issues are and and it could be that you know you can do this by agreement so you could end up going to your fda with an agreed expert you know already and its, it's pending court approval but, you know other options are that you at an fda stage for example for a matrimonial home agree the value for the purposes of fdr to try and keep cost proportionate and then you don't make your application for a part 25 until matters say don't settle at an FDR stage so it can be revisited revisited at that point in time and I think it's also good to have in mind proportionality and costs as
2: well. So looking at um, the sort of preliminary inquiries that you would make in terms of your single joint expert you first need to think about who to write to and what kind of Uh, questions you need to put in your introductory email it depends as Louise was saying whether you're in voluntary proceedings or whether you're in court proceedings as to whether you do it uh, as to whether you make your inquiries before with with the help of the other side or just on your own as in before the application Um, but essentially you would want to consider in the first instance giving the other side a list of names that you're going to consider you may have You may do that after you've sent out the initial email, depending on how things have been going, or you may do it before and invite them to agree who you're going to send out your initial email to. It's usually advisable to list at least three experts for variety's sake, and also because there's always, there's likely to be a problem with at least one of them from the other side. But sometimes, you know, you can have as many as as five experts on the list. And then when you are reaching out for your initial email, what's really important to do in in your preliminary questions is to make sure that you ask firstly what the cost is because that's really important to the client secondly whether they have capacity to do this work in in a timely fashion you know you don't want to instruct someone and then find out it's going to take them six months to produce a report so really important to know you know that they will get it done as quickly as possible i mean there's always a limit on how quickly things can be done and it can take a couple of months, but you don't want things to delay unnecessarily. And then see um, most importantly, from the lawyer's perspective, confirm that they do indeed have the relevant expertise for the report that you are seeking to request. So in voluntary proceedings, as I said, you might find that you jointly send out initial emails and then seek to reach agreement about which expert would be the most suitable or if, if you're if you're not in agreement and you are making the application then you would send you would send out your your own inquiries and and attach them to the application depends the judge so once you've submitted your application the judge will make a decision based upon the the pricing the capacity and the expertise of the relevant judges and will take the other side's perspective into that and that is if you haven't been able to agree which experts to reach out to uh, with the other side before this generally part i found in my experience at least part can agree which expert they're going to go with and they tend to put in a a consent order to get to get the expert evidence approved and that's when you're in proceedings so moving on to the draft letter of instruction when you have agreed when you have agreed an expert i'll pass to mike
0: so we've agreed who the expert is going to be so we then move on to drafting the letter of instruction so in terms of who drafts the letter of instruction this might depend slightly on whether it's happen on, happening on a voluntary basis or as part of court proceedings. In voluntary proceedings it will often be the party who has sought the report um, if there's one party that wants it more than the other or has suggested it or if they both agree that it's necessary to obtain a report then um, they might agree between them who drafts it and perhaps the party who's uh, Name the asset is in, or has a closer link to it, and uh, and has either access to the information. It will be the one that drafts it. Uh, in court proceedings, generally the applicant drafts it, but if it's been if it's been ordered by the court. But again, the parties can agree or make submissions to the court that the uh, respondent should draft it. Again, they might have a closer link to the asset, or, or they're going to be paying for the report. Um, but either way, both parties will have the chance to review and comment on the letter of instruction and it will need to be agreed and signed off by both of them before it's sent to the expert. Uh, we'll talk about specifically what will need to go in the different types of instruction letter um as we come to those sections in, in this episode, but generally there are some things which will go in all letters. So I tend to include uh, a background of the case and the parties and the level of detail will depend on what kind of report, but usually try to give some background on the proceedings and key dates and the hearings, at, um, the hearing at which the report was ordered, if if it was ordered at a hearing, and give some background on the parties and, and the, an overview of the proceedings to, to date. In things like pensions or business, Uh, reports you might want to go into more detail about the background of the asset and when it was acquired or built up and detail about the involvement of both parties during the marriage um, if it's a business for example and it's it's basically useful just to think about what you're going to be asking the expert to comment on and then think about the background information it will be useful for them to have when answering these questions you need to set out the basis of the instruction which again will be different depending on the type of report that you're seeking and, and we'll go into more detail about that that further on but essentially you want to make a list of uh, what the expert is being asked to report on and, and the specific questions you have for them um it's useful to include a list of the documents that are being included with the the report it's also useful to um have a section setting out the various parts of part 25 of the family procedure rules which are relevant so it's part 25 and, and practice direction 25 a b d and e and i generally tend to explain the relevant parts of this that uh, will apply to the expert and you know confirm the statement of the truth that needs to be included uh, and attach copies of these for information um, and say things, you know, highlight the relevant points of that, and the fact that they'll have ten days, the parties have ten days from the dates of the report to ask questions and and confirm who's going to pay for the expert's time re- responding to these questions, and and again, just set out some of the general duties in those sections. Also useful to include a confirmation of the fees that were quoted by the expert when email inquiries were made or telephone inquiries or however they were made um, so that they can confirm that that fee still stands before they start their work or can provide an updated um, fee for the report and it's useful just to confirm to the expert who's going to be paying the fee. Turning now to the more specific types of expert report we might be seeking, Louise, I wonder if you could just talk us through the letter of instruction in relation to a business expert report.
1: Yeah, of course. So in terms of a business valuation, I suppose from the outset, we have to consider why we might want a business valuation in the first place. There's, there's no formula to decide when one is relevant or not um you just kind of get a feel for the case essentially the most common type of businesses that tend to come up in financial remedy proceedings are limited companies so public or private partnerships sole traders and if in doubt forensic accountant a forensic accountant that that you know or is known to the firm sometimes they're willing to just have a look over company accounts for you and to give you a view as to whether they think it's it's worth you spending the money but Some questions to consider which might indicate that a business should be valued are things like, do the parties own a substantial portion of the business and who owns the remainder? Is there any indication or suspicion that the business might be sold? Is there any complicated structures within the businesses? So it could be things like um, family trust within them. It could be a family-run business um, for one of the parties. Uh, Do the accounts show significant capital or significant growth? Is there discrepancy between profits and the standard of living? You know, it could be, for example, that the past had a really high standard of living and tends to be not generalizing, but husband values the company at nothing. You know, things don't quite add up there do you think that the accounts don't show, show the full picture? Is this business worth more than, than what the accounts are showing within a Form me And then kind of moving on to the instruction itself, in terms of the basis of the valuation, obviously the expert that you instruct will take a view on this. But as an overview, some one approach is a, a net asset valuation. So this tends to be used for things like investment trusts, property investment companies, and certain financial institutions for examples where these are kind of most used but they're not normally considered acceptable to value a business that's ongoing. Um, There are some exceptions to this, but generally it, it tends to not be for an ongoing business. Most valuation reports will look at the net assets in any event, um, but it's just one one potential basis alone. Then another option is an earning basis valuation. So this is most commonly used when you're valuing an ongoing trading company. It's applicable to valuing a business as a whole where the purchaser will have access to the earning stream and is generally an accepted valuation method in itself. Anyway, um, it arrives at a valuation by identifying a level of earnings representative of the business, comparing earnings of other businesses for which market values are known, And then applying a multiple of the representative earnings. And then another option is a dividend yield yield basis. The dividend yield basis attempts to value directly a small kind of package of shares where the shareholder has no control in his own right. So it's not typically used to value a private company as a whole where a sm- small shareholding is being valued in a company which has consistent and I- identifiable dividend patterns, it's possible to value the shares by reference to the level of dividends they are likely to receive in the future. This recognises that a minority shareholder has little influence on the management of the company and no control over the dividends they receive. So obviously, if a company being valued does not pay dividends, then obviously this valuation technique is not normally used. You can also look at valuing individual shareholdings. Obviously, the the valuations I've, I've just set out below, above kind of calculate the value of a whole company um, and it may be necessary to just look at one party within the proceedings, looking at what sh- what's the value of the shareholdings that they hold within a company and that, that kind of tends to come up quite often. And then in terms of specific information that needs to be included in the letter of instruction, obviously background and history to the to the business. Um, It's trading activities, markets, you know, look at what what's going on in the market that it operates in. Is it likely to get better or worse due to something that's going on? And, And most importantly is current and historic trading. So, really uh, the experts going to want to look at three years leading up to the date of the valuation so essentially they're going to want to look for three years of audited accounts if you can't have audited accounts then unaudited accounts are fine um, but obviously it just it, it's preferable to have have audited um, if the company's less than three years old then accounts from the first period after incorporation should be provided and it's important to look at anything in the future that you think might come up that might be helpful and again look at accounts for the the year of marriage and the three years before this audited if possible management accounts are also helpful to provide look at um, the budget for the current financial year a summary of turnover um, any change in trends? So it could be that something happened last year that won't happen this year. They could have company could have bulk bought things that that's not necessarily going to happen the following year. Look at any patterns that are not going to be repeated, um, and basically just providing as much information as possible. Um, and any tax information, so corporation tax, that kind of thing. Future trading information, any borrowing information. So if they borrowed from banks. And then look at the business assets involved as well. Um, and also, it can be important to include information regarding people. So anything in relation to the directors of a company might be might be appropriate. And then in terms of specific questions to ask, obviously it depends on, on the case, but really you want to value, you want a comparison to you know comparable businesses, likely future profits, it, the business's capacity to borrow, tax implications of any sale of a business, because obviously that's going to impact settlement, whether funds can be raised from business assets. And that's quite a key point. Um, Extraction from the business tends to be a central issue. Can someone be bought out, for example? And then in terms of specific documents to include, It depends on the business itself and what's being valued, but things like copy of the memorandum, articles of association, any shareholders agreement, partnership agreements, if it's partnership, valuation of the company prepared by the company accountant, if there is one, you know, any um, significant um, HMRC inquiries or legal issues or liabilities that are likely to crop up and and any, any other bits of information that might impact on the business. And another issue to consider is whether the business itself owns any properties, because it could be that you end up with a business valuation and we will also need to make an application for a, a RICS valuer, uh, for example, to come in to look at any properties held by the business, because that will need to be taken into account by the business SJE as well.
0: Thanks, Louise. Ali, moving on to a letter of instruction in relation to a pensions report, what can you tell us about that?
2: Okay, so when you're looking at getting a pensions report, obviously you'll hopefully already have the CETV, which is is the cash equivalent transfer value which would have been disclosed with the Form E. It's helpful for the parties or for the court to have a pension report when you're trying to gauge what options are available to the parties because pensions are notoriously complex and so you need to know whether um, pension sharing, pension attachment, offsetting are appropriate and it does require expert advice to be able to consider this so pensions are also important because generally they are quite considerable they might be the second largest asset after the family home and you can't simply just take the figure of what of what is in the CETV and then offset against other assets if you do do that um, which some practitioners do you know you're you're in danger of attributing of of not doing your client a good service and attributing the wrong value um, because once the uh, once pension payments are being paid out it might be it might be a completely different experience so you want to consider whether it would be appropriate to achieve a quality of income on retirement or would would it be better to achieve a quality of capital also need to think about what benefits might be payable under a pension scheme and what the position is for each of the parties in respect of the lifetime allowance for the letter of instruction there'll be a number of inquiries to make depending on the case and there might be issues in terms of the from what dates your, the pension is going to be valued from. If there's a dispute over the length of the marriage or cohabitation or, or when separation occurred, then you'll probably want to have the different dates for, for what the figures would be if it finished at this point in time or if it's later found that the parties have, have separated at, at a later point in time. So you'd want to get values for both. Sometimes parties have multiple pensions with many different providers, which are all different. So you want to be able to to get an expert opinion on on the values of all those combined. You know there there are many different types. So people can have private pensions. They might have an occupational pension, and then there's, of course, defined benefit, defined contribution. Um, uh, we we've all got our state pension, but whatever you do. Do engage with the letter of instruction and don't try and work it out yourself if it's if it's complex, um, because you do need expert advice. What you want to include with your questions, which will be dependent on the case, is obviously the relevant pages from the Form E, the C T V statements and then and the form p and generally the pension expert will let you know if they need any further information or clarification obviously as, as Mike's already said you also need to include the relevant expert guidance and details of what periods you are seeking advice on once you've got the advice always remember, or or actually in the letter of instruction, to consider whether you'll be needing tax advice once the figures have come in.
0: Thank you very much, Ali. So turning on to the third of the different types of letter of instruction I mentioned we were going to be discussing today, the next one is land or property. As I mentioned previously, if parties can't agree on the value uh, of land or property, or it's a particularly tricky or unique property, then it might be that a letter of uh, an expert report is, is sought. So in terms of the specific information that needs to go in to a property letter of instruction, essentially it's as much information as the property as possible as you think will be relevant to the expert. so we um, want to include things like the title number the acquisition dates and costs the uh, work, any works that are done on the property who owns the legal title um, any restrictions on on the sale any planning permission um, how it's been used any offers received if it's been on the market um, how to access the property i mean there's no set criteria and again it's just whatever you think would assist the expert and it's, I, I find it tends to be useful to err on the side of caution and include a little bit more if I think it's going to be useful rather than than less to avoid including too much because you, you never know uh, exactly what they're going to find useful when doing the report. The basis of the valuation in relation to property is Usually, that there is a willing buyer and seller, um, that there's going to be sale or vacant possession uh, of an unencumbered property, and you're asking generally for the best price that would reasonably be paid uh, in an arm length transaction following marketing of the property. Usually, you would also ask for the expert to include comparables of properties sold in the last, for example, six months. The types of questions we tend to advise uh, ask in in these uh, letters of instruction are obviously what the market value of the property is. Um, if there is planning commission, then what would the, the value likely be if it was developed? Um, if there are restrictions on the the planning, uh, on, on the sale um, or planning, what's the likely impact of the removal of these on the value? Um, what would be the impact of splitting and, and selling as separate plots um, and ask for a value... Um, of, of both as individual plots and as a combination of those plots as a whole if they were sold separately um, for example this is this is quite relevant when you have things like farms and there's lots of different fields and different aspects and and sometimes a higher price can be obtained by splitting and selling it so it's, it's useful to sort of find out the different ways in which the value of the, the property can be to, can be maximized documents you'll want to enclose will obviously be office copies um, if there are any leases any uh, documents relating to planning, although an expert can generally get these from the planning website, but if you've got them to hand, it's useful to include them. Um, have there been written offers for sale or sale of parts? Um, any development plans, you know, architectural building plans, um, if you want the expert to comment on these and incorporate them. As we mentioned, the relevant parts of part 25 of the FPR, if there's a copy of the court order, if the report was ordered, that's useful. And again, anything else you think the expert would find useful. We've instructed the expert now, we've received the expert report, Louise, can you tell us what what happens next?
1: So once the expert report's received, obviously you want to make sure it's been filed with the court and served on all parties if it's within court proceedings then obviously the next port of call is to send it to the client for their comments and then how I would review it is I would review the document make a list of any questions or concerns and I would compare it against the letter of instruction this is probably more relevant in respect of um of business valuations but also in terms of properties I would look at the comparables used and kind of go through, make some notes, set out where I think there might be further questions or where something's come up that we didn't expect, for example, is a value higher than we expected, update a schedule of assets if you have that on file ready, and then go to kind of a more senior member in the team with your notes um, and and the client's notes, and then see whether at that point assess whether you think there's any further questions that need to be raised in respect of the experts. It, my experience in terms of property valuations is, especially when it's a not necessarily a commercial property, but say a house that they own or rent or whatever. The client normally has a real steer in terms of well, I think it's worth X because I've seen a property down the road sell for X. So I tend to on property valuations, for example, look at what comparables have been used and kind of do a little bit of digging. If we're not happy with the the value, and obviously if we are happy with it, then great. Um, and then in terms of business valuations, it may be that you know just after you get the report or just before the report's been produced you've had some updating documents could be more company accounts for example um, and you might want to deal with that within some questions just forwarding some extra information to them but I know that Ali is going to deal with timescales and how that's addressed.
2: Yes so in respect of timescales about when you're asking your follow-up questions the general rule is that you should only ask one set of questions so make sure you've taken the time as Louise says to properly consider the report to take your client's feedback to get feedback from a more senior member of staff and then collate your your queries all in one document or one, one email, one letter. When you do send it back to the expert, make sure you copy in the other side. They need to be included in that. And generally in terms of costs, unless agreed otherwise, whichever side is raising the further questions pays pays the costs of doing this. Important in terms of deadlines, you do need to make sure the questions are raised within 10 days of the report being served. And so that's really important to remember because it can sometimes take a bit of time to get through the reports because they can be quite dense. If the report is particularly complex, then of course you might want to consider whether or not you take separate expert advice on them just in terms of raising helping you to raise questions as, as you might do with a questionnaire. Or even to if you're considering challenging points in your questions, so consider whether you need to get that advice within the time frame of ten days. Take advice from counsel. Take advice from another expert if you need to when putting together your follow-up questions. And then, as I said, copy the other side in, and off they go. And hopefully, the turnaround coming back shouldn't be too much too too long.
0: Thank you both. So thank you very much for listening, and uh, thank you to Louise and Ali for joining me. We hope you found this podcast useful and we hope it provided some useful tips and points to note when instructing experts. So thank you. You have been listening to the Junior Family Law Podcast, a collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns.